Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audio selections, and I use Audible for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. I'm doing a lot of work around the house, and I've been listening to a bunch of audiobooks in the process. It definitely helps pass the time when putting up drywall or crown molding, and I learn a little in the process. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but neither the author nor the publisher sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book that I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of this episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep, forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to Episode 79 of History of the Marine Corps, The Banana Wars, Dominican Republic. The United States spent eight years occupying the Dominican Republic, and the Marines were responsible for maintaining law and order from local insurgents. We discuss the challenge of U.S. intervention and end the episode by discussing a similar scenario taking place next door in Haiti. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. The repercussions from the Monroe Doctrine were taking a heavy toll on the United States and the Marine Corps. With the Dominican Republic on the verge of bankruptcy and European creditors getting nervous about whether they'll see their money again, the United States accepted the responsibility of supervising the Dominican Republic's finances. In December 1904, the Roosevelt Corollary was added to the Monroe Doctrine. It stated that the United States would intervene in other countries as a last resort to ensure that other nations in the Western Hemisphere fulfilled their obligations to international creditors. This task wouldn't be easy, and the Dominican Republic had frequent revolutions, which the United States had to suppress constantly. After President Ramon Caceres was assassinated in November 1911, the number of insurrections got worse and the cost to defend against rebels increased substantially. When Eladio Victoria replaced Caceres, many political leaders rejected his appointment, and they revolted. The rebels captured forts along the Haitian border, and they stopped custom services. In response, the United States sent two commissioners to help re-establish customs. 750 Marines escorted the two diplomats for protection. After months of negotiations and threats from the commissioners to withhold customs money, they reached an agreement. The current president resigned, the Dominican Congress selected a provisional president, and as a result, the Marines left the Dominican Republic and headed back to Philadelphia. And for the next couple of years, the turmoil settled down a bit. President Taft and Secretary of State Knox drafted a foreign policy known as dollar diplomacy. 
The policy's goal was to develop the United States' commercial interest overseas and use the power of the U.S. economy to support a global presence. Instead of controlling a country through military force, the United States would control it through money. The Roosevelt Corollary issued loans to the Dominican, and in return, the United States had the right to choose the head of their customs. Taft himself stated that the policy substituted dollars for bullets. The United States used this foreign policy in multiple areas. It didn't work in Asia, but did well in Latin American countries. But there was a lot of controversy with this policy, and it would ultimately fail. It caused anger from poor countries whose resources created wealth for the United States and U.S. corporations, while the residents of that country remained poor. When Woodrow Wilson became president, he got rid of dollar diplomacy, and he created the Wilson Plan to help the Dominican Republic. This plan proposed a peaceful solution to the rebellion. When the temporary president left office in April 1914, Wilson's plan started to fall apart, and soon a revolution was taking place in most of the country. And just like other conflicts we discussed, the heart of the uprising was in the same vicinity of U.S. corporations. In the early morning on June 1st, a small battalion of Marines and sailors landed. The sailors led the charge and captured one of the forts, and the rebels fled after a few concentrated shots from the USS Sacramento. There were two Marine casualties during this engagement, one wounded, and Captain Hershinger was killed. The town was now in control of U.S. troops, and the rebels withdrew to the south. On May 25th, Marine Captain Harris Lanning tried to negotiate a peaceful settlement with the insurgents' leader. He attempted to reinstate the former governor and have the acting rebel governor step down, but he wasn't successful. In response, a detachment of Marines and sailors landed the next day at Monte Cristi. There they occupied the town. Some of the detachments garrisoned in the forts, and the remaining troops advanced throughout the town and took control, but this action had unintended consequences. The rebels were able to size up the marines and sailors in town, and soon they realized that the number of American troops was relatively minor compared to the rebel army. This instilled confidence, and they soon started to issue threats. The United States heard rumors of an expected attack on June 3rd, which caused some commotion between U.S. troops garrisoned in Monte Cristi and the residents of the town. All available U.S. troops from nearby ships were sent to reinforce the small detachments, but U.S. strength was still small, and the number of troops sent in as reinforcements was about 100 sailors and marines. The attack never happened, but the new troops were still used. Captain Wise and 60 Marines started conducting reconnaissance on a couple of facilities in the river south of Monte Cristi. They met some resistance, and insurgents started firing. The Marines returned fire, at first with their rifles, but their defense didn't stop the rebels. Captain Wise called in the machine guns, and the insurgents fled quickly after that. But the strength of the rebel army kept growing in the Dominican Republic, and soon, it was clear that the number of U.S. troops on site wasn't enough to defend the town. More Marines were requested, and the 4th Regiment moved from San Diego, California to Santo Domingo, 
A battalion of sailors also deployed, and they landed at Santo Domingo as well, relieving the Marines. The United States continued their negotiations, and for a little while, the attacks declined. But by the middle of June, rebel activity started again, and it seemed to be getting worse. Colonel Joseph Pendleton oversaw the 4th Regiment, and they arrived on June 18th. As soon as the Marines pulled in, Pendleton took command of all naval forces on shore. Martial law was established throughout the country, and the 4th Regiment began preparations for an advance on Santiago, which was considered the center of insurgent activity. The news of the Marines advancing caused a lot of commotion for the residents and the rebels. Many Dominican leaders throughout the country thought this was a horrible idea. They suggested that the United States pause for a moment and hold off the attack, but the U.S. didn't listen to their advice, and they continued with their preparations. On June 26, Pendleton left with 33 officers and 800 Marines. Five officers and 230 Marine enlisted stayed and defended Monte Cristi. The 4th and 9th Companies, out of Puerto Plata, joined Pendleton's force and headed towards Santiago. The Marines marched 15 miles the first day and didn't see resistance from insurgents. As night fell, they made camp about a mile and a half east from a ridge called Las Trancheras. Little did the Marines know that two lines of rebel forces were entrenched here. When Pendleton heard about the nearby enemy, he set up a battery of artillery to cover the first line of trenches, while a machine gun company covered their flanks. The next day, the remaining Marines were positioned in a line and protected by supporting fire. The Marines moved towards their target, but soon discovered that the enemy's front line was too strong, and they were stopped. The pressure from the rebels confused the Marines, and the cooperation between units started to suffer. Major Robert Dunlap was serving as the acting chief of staff for Pendleton. He united the Marine units, took control of the frontline troops, and led the assault towards the insurgents. The fighting changed from rifle fire to bayonets, and soon after, the rebels fled and the first offensive line was down. The Marines immediately advanced towards the second line, and this time, the defense didn't put up much of a fight. Accurate shots from Marine rifle fire drove off the rest of the rebels. The Dominican Republic used the same strategy to defend against the Spanish in the 1860s. This area was always thought of as indestructible, but the Marines proved this theory wrong, and Pendleton was successful in this part of his advance, but it came at the cost of one Marine killed and four wounded. The Marines continued moving towards Santiago, but they faced a new challenge. The path was through roads and bridges destroyed by the constant fighting, and in response, Pendleton left one battalion at Las Trancheras, and they protected communication lines. He and the rest of the Marines managed to travel another nine miles before making camp. Rebels attempted to attack the camp at night, but the Marines managed to fight them off. The following day, the Marines defending the communication lines left and rejoined Pendleton. On June 30th, they saw two more battles resulting in another Marine being killed. Pendleton took the next two days to get situated. 
More Marines and supplies were being brought in from the rear, and communications to Monte Cristi were cut off. Pendleton stated that the regiment became a flying column, meaning they were a military detachment operating at a distance from the main force. This was a challenging time for the Marines. Without communication, they had a risk of an attack happening and no way of requesting support. Pendleton tried to avoid serious engagements with rebel forces, but on July 3rd, rebels attacked, killing one corporal and wounding eight other Marines. The Marines continued to advance until they reached Navarrete. There, they established communications and evacuated all wounded to Puerto Plata. By the time the Marines reached Santiago, the rebels had slowed down the resistance considerably. They sent a team to meet with Pendleton and discuss terms for peace. They agreed to let the U.S. occupy the city. Pendleton's Marines took control of the town including the two forts on the outskirts. The Marines continued to fight insurgents as they popped up, and it started to take a toll on the rebel army, and for a while, the attack stopped altogether. Many smaller groups surrendered and turned in their weapons and ammunition, and with rebel activity down, the Dominican was able to elect a temporary president. But despite the country slowly turning around, the United States still had control of its customs service. Payments to the Dominican government were stopped on August 18th, which impacted the president's ability to run his country effectively. President Carvajal presented a treaty to the United States on September 20th, agreeing to most of the U.S.'s requirements. The one stipulation he disagreed with was the control of their military by American officers. But this wasn't good enough for the United States, and the State Department denied his offer. But while politicians were politicking, the Marines continued to broaden their control throughout the country. In July, Marines occupied Mocha, La Vega, and San Francisco de Macorís. There were also a couple of posts established on the shore of Samana Bay. The Marines also sent large reconnaissance teams throughout the country, and patrols sought out rebel leaders. One of these patrols resulted in the death of Marine Corps Captain Lowe and First Sergeant Atwood. I'll post a breakdown of the distribution of Marines under this episode's page on historyofthemarinecorps.com. Soon, the Dominican central government was filled with U.S. military officers controlling the country. Pendleton was placed in charge of the Departments of War and Navy, Departments of the Interior, and the police department. Colonel Lane oversaw the Department of Foreign Relations, Justice, and Public Instruction. U.S. military officers also controlled the Exchequer and Commerce Departments, Public Works, Sanitation, and Custom Houses. The U.S. controlled the country. Most men in the Dominican Republic carried guns with them throughout town but the decision was made to disarm the civilian population during the U.S. occupation. This decision was met with some resistance. Marines and forces from the Dominican military had to go house to house and search for weapons. And during the first year and a half, 53,000 firearms and 14,000 bladed weapons were confiscated. The weapons were reissued to residents who were thought of as responsible and would help maintain order. 
But despite the substantial number of weapons seized, this was still a small number compared to the weapons in the country. Most of the arms were with bandits, and the Marines started to feel the pressure from these small forces. On August 13th, four Marines on patrol near Manchado were ambushed. A large group of bandits surrounded the Marines, and the Marines put up one hell of a fight. They were able to kill or wound a lot of them, but the small Marine patrol took substantial damage. Soon, the only Marine remaining was Private Rushforth. He was severely hurt, which included a pretty bad machete wound on his right hand. He couldn't physically resist any further, but he noticed his horse nearby. He ran to it, jumped on, and fled. The rebels fired at Rushforth as he escaped and managed to hit his horse in the neck and him in the hip. He received a lot of praise from Marine officers and the Secretary of the Navy, but unfortunately he was denied the Medal of Honor, since there were no witnesses. Two days later, another nine Marines were surrounded by bandits, but they were able to drive the insurgents back after only five minutes of firing. During September and October, Marine patrols faced multiple ambushes. The Marines, coupled with the Dominican Republic National Police Force, attempted to stop banditry, but despite the efforts from both military forces, little progress was made stopping these small groups. At the beginning of 1919, with World War I a thing of the past, the Department of the Navy had more assets to throw at the problem. They decided to put many of their resources into stopping the banditry. The 15th Regiment of Marines and an aviation squadron were brought in to reinforce the 2nd Brigade. The strength in the Dominican Republic rose to around 3,000 U.S. troops. Patrols were increased in country, and they put an end to any small bandit force they encountered. During 1919, Marines faced more than 200 conflicts with bandit groups. But similar to Nicaragua, the National Guard didn't face nearly this level of resistance, and they contributed very little. With Marines combating banditry and U.S. military officers managing the government's departments, the Dominicans started to see positive changes. Numerous social reforms were put into place, which improved the economy and public health. Roads were built, segregated parts of the country were united, and school enrollment increased from 18,000 to 100,000 kids. By the end of 1920, President Wilson ordered the withdrawal of military forces from the country. The Dominican politicians wanted nothing less than a full withdrawal of U.S. troops. However, the United States didn't want to see all of their work and improvements go down the drain. It would take another 15 months for the two sides to reach an agreement. During the negotiations, Marines continued with their task of clearing bandits, which had a significant impact on morale. Many of the Marines who served in the Dominican fought during World War I. Due to the shortage of Marines, which we discussed during a couple of episodes, the Corps was short on men, and many were sent directly from France to Santo Domingo after the Great War. Marines just wanted to go home and the multiple deployments caused a big drop in their morale. To top it off, the United States was going through serious issues as well. The Great Depression started rearing its head, 
the U.S. was also facing free speech issues. Margaret Sanger was arrested for giving a lecture on birth control. Trade union meetings were banned. Courts prohibited strikes and labor protests. Protesters against the U.S. entry into World War I were sent to jail. And flags supporting communism and anarchy were prohibited. Upton Sinclair, a popular U.S. author, was arrested for simply reading the First Amendment during a union rally. The money spent in all of these countries while the U.S. was going through a tough time back home was met with a lot of criticism. In an act of desperation, the Marines started to use the cordon system. Cordoning involves military troops, or any guard force, surrounding an area and preventing access to and from that area. They successfully found bandits, but this new system caused the locals to become angry and violent. When U.S. troops surrounded a town, they collected every male citizen and held them for identification. But it wasn't a practical system. Identification mostly came from locals physically picking out the bandits. The suspect would enter a dark tent, and secret observers identified them as a bandit or not. More than 600 men were identified as bandits. But due to the intense protest that resulted from the cordon system, the U.S. decided to stop using it, and Marines returned to patrolling. Eventually, the bandits were neutralized, and the country started to work on the competence of their local guard force so they could operate without the Marines' presence. Marines increased the training given to the guard force, and soon, they started taking over Marines' posts. The 2nd Brigade took a step back and served mostly as reserve force. And by mid-1924, Marines only occupied Puerto Plata, Santiago, and Santo Domingo City. The last Marines in country, who mostly served with closing out supply and other administrative tasks, left on September 16, 1924. The United States, specifically the Marines, spent more than eight years in the Dominican with an average force of 2,000 men. So, Marines face the same question we're asking today, and the same question asked during other Banana Wars conflicts. Was it worth it? The way the U.S. managed the situation in the Dominican Republic, specifically replacing the government with U.S. military officers, had a big impact on the United States. Other Latin American countries called our involvement highly imperialistic, which is hard to argue against. The U.S. also spent more money fixing the government and protecting European debts than what was actually owed to creditors. This came at the time of the Great Depression. On the flip side, the United States improved the infrastructure considerably, and the relationship between the United States and the Dominican Republic became more friendly. Marine Corps General Harry Lee, who served as the military governor of Santo Domingo, stated the following in his final report. Quote, the occupying force assumed control of a state rife with revolution, banditry, ungoverned, and mismanaged. We left a state enjoying peace and with a loyal and well-developed military force, with fine roads, many schools, a fine military hospital, and in short, with every promise for a future of stable government under Dominican rule. Unquote. During the intervention, Marines saw a total of seven killed and 50 wounded, 
The Dominican Republic is a good segue into our next episode, which is the intervention in Haiti. Next door to the Dominican Republic, Haiti was facing a similar issue, and the solution was the same foreign policy used during the Dominican Republic. Haiti was also in debt and could do little to stop the revolutions ravishing the country. The U.S. would get involved with Haiti a few months before the Dominican Republic, and they would stay a lot longer. In August 1914, Haitian funds were non-existent, and the Haitian government was bankrupt. This led to its downfall. The Banque Nationale, a privately owned bank that decided to cut off funds to Haiti in hopes that the U.S. would get involved, was soon the target of the Haitian government, who planned to confiscate the bank's gold reserve. The National City Bank of New York, who was working with the Haitian bank, secretly met with the State Department and proposed a plan to move gold from Haiti to New York. 65 Marines arrived on December 17, 1914, and they escorted $500,000 in gold to New York. For more than 100 years, Haiti faced revolts from slaves, and by the end of the 18th century, the number of slaves outnumbered the residents 10 to 1. When the French Revolution kicked off, the country turned violent. Every leader, from 1886 to 1915, was either overthrown or killed in office. Some were only in their seats for a few months. The Roosevelt Coral Area applied to Haiti, and soon, the State Department got involved. The Secretary of State, William Jennings Bryan, tried to gain financial control over Haiti in November. He offered four propositions to the Haitian government, but Haiti declined, and the U.S. would justify intervention after a revolution the following year. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll head to Haiti. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is The Afghanistan Papers by Craig Whitlock. So the Afghanistan Papers, not the book, the actual documents, are a series of interviews relating to the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. These interviews were initially obtained by the Washington Post in 2019 through the Freedom of Information Act. These are some eye-opening interviews, and government officials admitted that U.S. involvement in Afghanistan was a complete failure, from the beginning. But despite their opinion, or what they knew, they lied to the public, and stated the opposite. This book dives deeper into the public deception. It was only released a week ago, and the story is still fresh in my mind. It's sad. It's sad that the failure in Afghanistan has turned into a political talking point. While politicians and senior government officials point fingers at each other, the reality is that each of them had a hand in this debacle. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, 
please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.